A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimt waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kauten Schabes hat es getan. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, it is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored, and it is dedicated in the memory of Mordechai Yosef and Brandel Nussbaum and their six children who lived in Warsaw until coming to the United States before World War I and would have lived in the large and diverse Warsaw Jewish community where many of the, event, the events to be described took place. It is also dedicated in memory of all those who have passed away, unfortunately, from the coronavirus and to the families and friends mourning their loss. Lishana Haba for all of us. This uh, episode tonight is um, the Jewish Mafia Part Three. Parts one and two were way, way, way back. You'll have to listen to those again to refresh your memory about the Jewish mob in the United States, mainly in New York City, in Brownsville, and Manhattan, and other parts, but also in in Chicago, Detroit, and other parts in L.A in other parts of America in the uh, first half of the ni- of the 20th century. Um, and uh, we're going to move back across the ocean to where these mobsters originally came from to try to see if there was any counterpart at this time in the old country, which uh, there was. We assume uh, Jewish criminality and organized crime um, to be an American phenomenon. The famous, you know, Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel, and uh, Dutch Schultz, and uh, and um, you know all these uh, famous or infamous, rather, uh, criminals, um, gangsters of of that time, Louis Lepke, and many others who we discussed then, and perhaps we'll still discuss at other times. But unfortunately. Jewish crime and criminals have always been an element of Jewish communal life and society throughout the ages, throughout Jewish history, um, in any time period, in any place. It's, it, there's always been that element of society in the darker pages of history. So today we'll focus on gangs and organized crime in the modern era, as it's the closest comparison to its more famous American counterpart. So we'll talk about the Jewish underworlds in Warsaw, in Poland and Ludge, and in other parts of Eastern Europe, in Odessa, and how it was exported to 
to South America, to Buenos Aires, on the immigration route, and how they managed their affairs. They even had uh, Dine Taira. It wasn't Dine Taira. It was uh, it was a Bezdin, but it wasn't a Dine Taira, far from anything remotely related to Taira. But they had their own arbitration uh, system and uh, all kinds of stories like that. We'll try to explore that a little bit. I want to start off with... Uh, a little bit of a, a uh, idea about cultural influence. I remember um, someone who was criticized, if I was talking to someone, someone who was criticizing something about Poland, I don't know if it was Polish anti-Semitism or, I don't know, whatever it was, and he used the word um, that it's a big balagan. Um, so I said to him, you're using that word to describe your criticism of of something in Poland, the government, or I don't remember what it was, and you used the word balagan. I'm just curious where you picked up that word. So you said, what do you mean? It's Hebrew. I said, really? Does it appear in Tanakh anywhere, in, in the Gemara? Where, where does it come from in Hebrew? What's the root of the word or the etymology? So he didn't know, of course. So I told him it's actually Polish, and it means exactly what it means in Hebrew. It means, uh, you know, big a big balagan, a big... Uh, Hula Baloo, uh, you know, uh, uh, a whole, I don't even know if it's translatable. Either way, so that was, that's just one example. There's many, many influences, Jewish influences in, in, in Hebrew of, from Poland. And it's the story of two cultures that, that have been together for 800 years. And till today, there's remnants of that cultural influence. And it goes beyond the fact that, Jews and Poles still are pretty much the only people in the world who love seltzer. Um, most Americans don't even call it seltzer. They call it club soda. But Jews love seltzer. And that comes from Poland. You go to Poland till today, then the regular water is voda neogazowana, water without, without gas, the gazowana, without a fizz. Whereas seltzer is voda gazovana, water with gas, with fizz. In other words, the seltzer is so prominent as a drink that that water without fizz is called water without fizz, right? So, it, but it goes beyond that. That's my point. And uh, there's a lot of linguistic uh, connection as well. There's many um, Polish words used in Hebrew and in Yiddish and even in Jewish English uh, until today, and surprisingly, even vice versa. There are Yiddish words that are used in Polish till this very day, and in particular, in the world of the underworld and organized crime, there are several words that are used that have their roots in Hebrew or Hebrew-Yiddish, Ashkenazi Hebrew-Yiddish of the time. In other words, I'll give you a few examples. Uh, the way to say shady business in Polish is machloika, which comes from, of course, the word machloikas. Uh, a gang in Polish is sitva, which comes from shutfis, comes from a partnership, uh, which was the Jewish word for gang at the time. Um, in the underworld, the way to say cool is git, which is the Polish way that, that they say good, gut. In Yiddish, um, and even most surprisingly, an arbitration court in the or underworld of crime until today is called a bezdin in Polish. A uh, slamazara is a shlamazel, right? Which doesn't need translation. 
And you can go on and on and on. There's plenty of words like that. And the question arises, I mean, there's many Yiddish words that are still in Polish, and but why in particular is the underworld, why is that so predominant? And unfortunately, it's nothing to be proud of, but it's because um, Jewish gangsters were from the big architects and very prominent in the Polish underworld of organized crime in the second half of the 20, 19th century and the first half of the 20th. And therefore, it be it became like that. So I want to start off with going way back in history um, with a story that's sort of unrelated, but I like it anyway, so we'll make it related. There's a story that's cited in the Shivche Baal Shem Tev, the oldest and, and the most famous of the books about stories of the Baal Shem Tev's life. And one of the stories is the Baal Shem Tev is doing his hisbaidadis, his, his solitude, his service of God in the mountains, the Carpathian Mountains in the southern uh, southern parts of the uh, Polish kingdom at the time. And he's walking about these mountains and there's a a, you know, cliffs and, and valleys, and, and he's in another world. And there's a group of thieves who presumably, doesn't say explicitly in the story, but it seems that they're non-Jewish. We're not talking about Jewish criminals here. And they're witnessing him from afar, and they see that he's walking dangerously close to the cliff. And they say, oh boy, this Jew is going to fall right in. And the miracle of miracles, because we're talking about the Baal Shem Tev, and we're talking about the book Shivche Baal Shem Tev, so the mountains come together, and every time he walks over this cliff, the mountains come together, and he never falls in because it just seamlessly uh, continues miraculously, and he does not ever fall, and he doesn't even notice it because he's he's in his uh, he's in his uh, in his dvekas, in his he's in another world, and the thieves notice it, and they come to the Baal Shem Tev, and they say, you know what just happened to you? We saw what happened. And we want you to be our judge. Again, presumably we're talking about a group of non-Jewish thieves. And he becomes their arbitration judge about all their underworld criminal activity. He makes a condition with them. He says, only on condition that you never ever uh, steal money from a Jew. And uh, they agree to the condition. And he becomes the judge. So even though we're not talking about Jewish criminals, but here the idea of the arbitration um, and that there's a justice system of organized crime, and here the Baal Shem Tev is the one who's their judge, it comes up for the first time. And we move along into the 19th century, and here we have another uh, tragic story, which really, this is something that needs to be explored in its own episode, and hopefully we'll get to that eventually, during the time of the Cantonists, which is a very famous and misunderstood time period. It was during um, the rule of uh, Tsar Nicholas Nikolai the uh, the first, and he was the czar for thirty years between eighteen twenty five and eighteen fifty five, and for a large part of those years there was the Cantonist decrees. So you're talking about a first of all to put it into context. So the 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 the, the, the Cantonist decrees of of, of drafting um, into the army when they're at a young age and keeping them for twenty five years they were only during the time of Tsar Nikolai. Um, there was other draft issues at, during other czars, but this, the Cantonists, from a young age and taken for such a long time, was only during this time period. Now, again, this is a whole story, but uh, to explain how it worked and why it was so tragic and, and, and what happened, but at the end of the day, there, there was no 
there was no accountability for the individual. In other words, it wasn't that Ruvain got a draft notice in the mail from the Tsarist uh, uh, government. It was that the Jewish community as an entity had to provide a certain number of draftees. Now that created a huge problem because now it's not that every person is draft eligible, but now the community has to decide. So the community hires um, basically gangsters for hire, and they're hired by the official Jewish community, paid a salary collected through taxes of the Jewish community, and the official kahal hires people called chappers, and they are the ones, Jewish you know, gangsters, who kidnap members, Jewish members of the community, to hand over to the czarist authorities that they should be the ones to serve in the Russian army. Very, very sad and tragic uh, era. And that, we can say, is perhaps one of the first uh, uh, manifestations of Jewish organized crime. But here it's even worse because it's actually organized the community itself. We'll have to get to the Cantonists another time to explore this issue and this uh, very sad and unfortunate uh, story. But that that becomes a, an antecedent to what happens later. Um, so, so some of these gangs do continue on their own after the Cantonist uh, decrees end that the Crimean War and with the death of Tsar Nikolai, so it comes to an end. So there was, you know, once these gangs were already around, so they kind of continued, which is similar to how, by the way, the gangsters in the United States work. They were mo- primarily organized during Prohibition, alcohol, and once Prohibition was repealed in 1933, many of them continued in other venues and racketeering and and then protection and extortion and, and gambling and casinos and all kinds of other stuff. So these gangs in Europe, they were now unemployed because the Cantonist decrees was over, so there was no need to kidnap Jewish children anymore, so many of them went into other uh, criminal activities. Some of them actually went into the business of stealing Sifrei Torah. It was very expensive for a community to commission the writing of a new Sefer Torah. So what, what, the, what, what very often what happened was they would buy one, so they would, they would, it was a market created for used Sifre Torah. So what these uh, gangs would sometimes do would steal a Sifre Torah from one town and go ahead a few towns down the road and say, oh, we have Sifre Torah for sale. And, you know, and that's, uh, that's uh, one of the things they did, unfortunately. Either way, so we come to um, the next stage in, in, uh, in the development of, of Jewish gangsters in Eastern Europe. And, um, and uh, in in the later part of the 1800s, the much of the criminal underworld in Warsaw and the white slave trade and trafficking and in other parts of Poland also was unfortunately dominated by Jews at the turn of the century. And really, it starts in the later decades of the 19th century. In uh, in 1874, two thirds of the victims of human trafficking in, in Warsaw were Jewish, and in 1889, around 75% of all of the houses involved with the white slave trade in Warsaw were run by Jews. Uh, there was kidnapping and trafficking, and this uh, explodes in a fascinating story called the Alphonse Pogrom, which is three days long in May 1905. And most pogroms in Eastern Europe during the time, early 1900s, we would assume were non-Jews that perpetrated it against the Jews with government involvement, without government involvement, anti-Semitism, religious anti-Semitism, all types of things. And here what we have is what really was Jews against other Jews, and and, uh, and even Jews and non-Jews against Jews and non-Jews. Very interesting stories. You have 
um, the Jew- Jewish workers, uh, primarily, according to one version of the story, at least, it's not clear until today, um, the Bund, um, who represented the Jewish workers, was going against the criminal underworld. Uh, the Bund and the workers saw it as uh, exploitation of of uh, Jewish victims, and these and and they were in cahoots. The, the the Jewish gangsters were in cahoots with the czarist corrupt police, who were paid off and bribed to look the other way with all this criminal activity and kidnapping and trafficking going on. So, in the context of the 1905 revolution, which was in the air during 1905, it was a revolution against the czar. They attempted it, which was quashed eventually. So then the the workers and the Bund-led workers, according to this version of the events, went ahead against the Jewish criminal activity in Warsaw. According to another version, it's less idealistic, it's rather rival criminal gangs within the Jewish underworld, and it was just gang wars and turf wars, and it spilled over into a full-scale pogrom. But according to either version, there was rioting, property damage, several died, Many were injured. There was hundreds of thousands of rubles of damage, three days of looting and rioting, and it was mostly within the Jewish neighborhoods, Jews, Bundists, um, people, you know, people who were politically motivated to stick up for the workers and the underdogs of society who were victims of these Jewish criminals, and it was going against the Jewish underworld. And eventually the Tsarist military restored order. And at the same time, parallel to this, there were Poles in Polish neighborhoods who were going against the Polish underworld, which took part as at the same time. So there's lots of arrests of the Jewish underworld figures uh, at this time. And eventually the Bund took credit for its activism by bringing the issue of the Jewish criminal underworld, underworld and the exploitation of these victims onto the public agenda, um, which you know everyone was trying to suppress it until then. It's you know, very shameful... Uh, behavior of Jews within the community and and, and uh, to confront it as a real issue uh, took place at this time. Eventually there was government debate and reforms which followed to, that attempted to suppress this activity. That was all in uh, Warsaw. Uh, in other places it was happening as well. One of the most famous places was in Odessa, the other end of the Russian Empire, all the way down south, deeper into Ukraine. Um, there's a famous... Um, Jewish writer who was eventually killed by Stalin during the purges in the, in the late 1930s. His name was Isaac Babel. Isaac Babel today is, you know, is a hero. He's got statues, he's a big writer, he wrote all kinds of books. One of the books he wrote, which was really a collection of short stories, is called The Odessa Tales. And The Odessa Tales tells the story of what took place in the Jewish neighborhood in Odessa called the Mold, Moldavanka neighborhood. And it was about the Jewish gangsters there who were involved in, in you know, exploitation of businesses and protection money in the docks and almost like New York. There was even a famous gangster called, uh, Jewish gangster who was called Mishke Yapochnik. And his, his, that was his criminal name, his gang name, which was not his real name, is he was born Moishe Volvovich Vinitsky. And he was one of the heads of organized crime in Odessa. And he um, um, was a leading gangster, even in the, the Odessa vicinity. His 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 uh, he spread um, even beyond Odessa. He was even and he joined the military because he was in cahoots with the uh, with the police. And he joined the military during the revolution. And um, but eventually he was killed. Um, unclear how. Some, some say that his battalion mutinied during the revolution. 
And so they had him killed and whatever it was, but he was killed in 1919 um, in the aftermath of the Civil War, uh, during the midst of the Civil War, rather, um, in the Odessa area. So in the so you have this whole storybook, really, of, of, of Isaac Babel telling about the, um, the Odessa Jewish mafia. It wasn't called a mafia. There was no Italians. The Jewish mob, the Jewish gangs uh, who were in charge of all the criminal activity going on in, uh, in the Odessa during that time in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and uh, really um, up, up until the revolution. Um, but if we go back to uh, Warsaw, in the interwar period, it's more organized. Again, it's becoming an organized crime. The big difference between the mob and a regular criminal is the mob is organized. And you have to understand what Warsaw was like at this time. Warsaw was this huge urban sprawl of Jewish community. There was no Jewish community like that in the world except for New York City. It was, uh, in other words, it was massive, very urban, very diverse. So, again, you have to understand, it's not a little shtetl where there's a couple of Jewish criminals. You know, you had in the, for hundreds of years in Polish Jewish history, if there was a Jewish criminal, then the Kahal punished him. Outside the shul, there was something called a kunin, and, uh, and they, he was held in shame if he stole all kinds of crimes. If he didn't pay taxes, he was also put there. If he, if he desecrated the Shabbos, he was put there. The Kahal had all kinds of punishment that they, uh, they could mete out to uh, trans, transgressors of, uh, of, of all kinds. So a Jewish, a petty thief or a shoplifter or something like that. In fact, in the shul in Pshischa that we visit, whenever we go to Pshischa in Poland, so they still have one of the only places in the entire Eastern Europe, there's only two or three shuls that still have a kunin outside of the shul where they held criminals. Either way, that's isolated incidents and that's isolated criminals. We're talking about, in the interwar period, just like in New York, you're talking about a huge urban area with a community that's a Jewish community that's almost 400,000 people, they're a third of the population of the city, and therefore you're going to have a massive diversity within. You're not going to just have um, Gera Hasidim around, you're not going to just have even Bundists around, or Zionists, you're going to have even criminal elements of society uh, as well, unfortunately. So such heavy Jewish involvement in, in organized crime uh, understandably leads to anti-Semitism um, because uh, they, they become dominant in the underworld. And therefore the Jewish establishment has to constantly distance themselves from these criminal elements in society, like I described earlier with the Bund and even the mainstream Kahal. And very often it was dis- discussed at rabbinic conferences in uh, you know, what to do with this. This is a huge issue. Um, one of the most famous, well, probably the most famous one, was this terrible organization called the Tzvi Migdal, uh, organized uh, crime, Jewish uh, criminal organization, from the late 1800s until, lasted until the Second World War. And it was a, on a route from Warsaw to Buenos Aires in Argentina. But they had branches all over. They had branches in Brazil, in New York City, and other places around the world, in South Africa, and all, all over. But their main, main base of operation was in Buenos Aires and, and working from Warsaw. So, uh, so the, uh, the, in the Buenos Aires Center, they had this massive organization, um, which was involved in trafficking, in this, in the white slave trade, in the, in this, in this terrible victimization, um, and, and eventually is taken down by the Argentine police and the justice system in the 1930s. I'll get to that in a minute. But the, um, the, uh, the establishment had to attempt to deal with, with Jewish crime. 
um, the, uh, the rabbinical world, the political world, the education. Uh, I mentioned in the Beis Yaakov series that Beis Yaakov was seen as a response to this uh, all this criminal activity, this exploitation of Jewish women who were poor, and many of them were orphans, and if they would be empowered by Jewish education, they would not fall into the traps of these nefarious individuals who were uh, who were taking them away and selling them into slavery into uh, Argentina. Um, so the the it was raised it was raised at, at rabbinical conferences uh, sometimes and and what to what to do about it writers like Shalom Aleichem raised the issue in their writings there's uh, other Yiddish writers as well they talk about it meaning it was a real issue that society had to confront and deal with um, these these women who had been kidnapped and traded and sold into slavery eventually organized themselves they were a pariah in their own society in South America. And in South America, in, in Brazil and, and in Argentina, they organized a chesed society to help their own members, to assist them, to get the medical care. They even bought land to make their own cemeteries, because no one would bury them in a regular Jewish cemetery, um, even though they were victims of circumstances that were way beyond their control. In several locations, these cemeteries exist till, till today. Um, religious needs. Um, there was a woman named Rachel Lieberman, that she was eventually the heroine who took down this massive Tzvi Migdal organization. Huge international network, with hundreds of people involved, millions of dollars, many branches. The local police in Buenos Aires and local government are all bribed and, com- com- you know, they complicitly go along with everything. And she brings it down almost single-handedly through the Argentine uh, police and justice system, there was one judge who wouldn't take bribes, and he's the one who eventually tried them, and they broke it up in the 1930s. There was another one named Simon Rubinstein. He came from Odessa. He was part of the Odessa underworld, and he eventually becomes a smuggler, also in Buenos Aires. And he opens up a rival gang called Ashkenazim, uh, believe it or not. Um, and it, that, that's a rival gang operating in Buenos Aires, along pretty much the same line, similar type of activities um, as the Tzvi Migdal. If we get back to Warsaw, it was a very politicized atmosphere. Warsaw, Lodge, um, unions, workers, the textile industry. So it invites criminal activity. And there's rival Jewish gangs who would have arbitration by underground Jewish courts, um, which which would be called, like I said, a Bezdin. And the official language of these Gangsters was primarily Yiddish, also Polish, but primarily Yiddish. They're very Jewish. In many ways, it was similar and even more Jewish than the Jewish mob in New York City at the same time. The Jewish mob in New York City was already more secular, more Americanized, very much influenced by the Italians. And here it's a very, very Jewish activity, um, very Yiddish, unfortunately, and uh, that gave it a very bad a reputation um, as well. And we move on to the last... Um, a tragic stage of this really horrible story is the what it took place during the Holocaust. Um, what happened to all these criminals then? And here they came out to be really the most horrible people that they could have been. There was a fellow by the name of uh, Avram Ganswich. Avram Ganswich was not a criminal before the war. He lived in Vienna, he lived in Warsaw. He was involved, he was a Zionist, involved in Shomer Hatzair for a period of time. And during the Holocaust, he becomes a gangster. And he organizes a group called the Dratzeners, the 13. The 13 group was called that because their 
office was on 13 Leshno Street. Now, Leshno Street is like, as we mentioned, 13. So it was like 13th Avenue. It was like uh, Coney Island. It was like, um, uh, you know, um, whatever, Gula, Malche Yisrael, whatever your, your, um, your main street. It's a Rothschild Avenue in Tel Aviv. The main street of a major Jewish city. That and Nalevki Street in Warsaw. Also, there's a couple of main streets in Warsaw, different neighborhoods. But Leshno Street was one of the main avenues. And here, right on there, in the middle, and it also ends up in the Warsaw Ghetto, of course, it is um, 13 Leshno Street is the offices of this this uh, criminal activity who are recognized by the Nazis because they are collaborators. They are known by by the by the masses in the ghetto, and it's and Ringelblum uh, Emmanuel Ringelblum in in the Einik uh, Shabbos archive wrote about it. Cherniakov, the head of the Judenrat, in his diary wrote about it that they're known as the Jewish Gestapo. Everyone despised them. Everyone across the political spectrum, across the religious spectrum, across the socioeconomic spectrum despised him and his group. They were involved in racketeering and smuggling. They tried to cover it up. Um, by engaging in social activities, by helping the poor and and engaging artists and healthcare, but his healthcare, his ambulances were used instead for smuggling, and he reported directly to the Gestapo. In other words, he bypassed the Judenrat. He was an outright collabor- collaborator with the Nazis, and this is fundamentally different than the collaborationist activities by ghetto police or by Judenrat, which is still a controversial subject till today and needs to be explored. It, it's This is different. This is outright collaboration. This is straight-up criminal activity, uh, betraying his, his fellow Jews in order for him to, you know, he and his gangsters lived lavishly in, in the ghetto. If anyone has seen the pianist in the uh, this, in the scene when, when, when uh, Spielmann, Vladislav Spielmann, plays in the restaurant... You know, he makes a living by playing in the restaurant for these type of people. These people who are making loads of money, who lived very lavishly in the ghetto, and they had a piano playing in the background in the restaurant in the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, he used blackmail, extortion. They also controlled all the transportation in the ghetto, all the horse carriages and the, the uh, different transportation. You also have to understand, again, this is also another topic, we'll have to devote at least one, probably more episodes to understanding the Warsaw Ghetto. The Warsaw Ghetto was fundamentally different than any other of the thousand-plus ghettos in Nazi-occupied Europe. Because of its sheer size, you're talking about a ghetto that had, had close to half a million people at its peak, and it dip, makes it different in so many ways. It makes it that it's huge, and it's diverse, and it's just different than any other ghetto, which um, now you'll have to take my word for it, and uh, hopefully we'll get to it uh, at a future uh, opportunity. Um, so... Uh, the, the Nazis eventually dismantled the organization, the 13, that Ganswich was in charge of, and he killed most of its members. After all their collaboration, it didn't help them at all. Ganswich himself, just to illustrate how horrible this criminal was, he left to the other side of Warsaw, outside of the ghetto, where he again cooperates with the Gestapo to found another organization, this new organization, with the remnants of his Jewish gangsters. What are they doing now? They're targeting Poles. They're going after Poles. So here you have Jewish gangsters collaborating with the Nazis to target Poles who are doing crimes under the Nazi occupation. What sort of crimes? Very very often it was Poles who were hiding or helping Jews. So here you have this Jewish gangster working for the Nazis, 
are trying to get Poles arrested who are helping Jews. Absolutely horrible. This did, of course, helps uh, a greatly for anti-Semitism after the war as well. Um, and he was killed himself by the, you know, he's eventually also, it's not clear how and when, but he was probably killed uh, in May of 1943. So you had this uh, element of criminal activity as well. By the way, it wasn't in, only in Warsaw, it was many other ghettos as well. What, what did the Nazis discover? The Nazis would discover that very often the uh, Judenrat, who they had originally appointed, which was from the political elite of the Jewish community, very often they would not cooperate with the Nazis when it came time for the deportations a couple of years later. Um, and uh, the Nazis would then summarily execute the entire Judenrat and appoint a new Judenrat. And who would very often this new Judenrat be? Jews from the underworld, the criminals, the gangsters, and they would be much more likely to cooperate with the Nazis. For instance, in Minsk, the Minsk ghetto had three Judenrats because the Judenrat in Minsk refused to cooperate with the Nazis. And they actually cooperated with the underground and helped them escape to the partisans and all kinds of activity like that. So the Nazis uh, executed the entire Judenrat and the third round of the Judenrat was just the Jewish criminals of Minsk, the Jewish gangsters of Minsk. And it happened in other ghettos as well in the later stages. So this is a very sad chapter in Jewish history, but it's, uh, again, part of Jewish history and kind of in a very different way related to what we discussed in, uh, in, um, in the first two parts about the Jewish mob in the New World, in New York and other places. Um, and this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, uh, lectures, sponsorships, virtual tours, and you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.